بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ما كان محمد أبا أحد من رجالكم ولكن رسول الله ولكن رسول الله وخاتم النبيين وكان الله بكل شيء عليما يا أيها الذين آمنوا ذكروا الله ذكرا كثيرا وسبحوه بكرة وأصيلا هو الذي يصلي عليكم وملائكته ليخرجكم من الظلمات إلى النور وكان بالمؤمنين رحيما تحيتهم يوم يلقونه سلام وأعد لهم أجرا كريما يا أيها النبي إنا أرسلناك شاهدا ومبشرا ونذيرا وداعيا إلى الله وداعيا إلى الله بإذنه وسراجا منيرا وبشر المؤمنين وبشر المؤمنين بأن لهم من الله فضلا كبيرا ولا تطع الكافرين والمنافقين ودع أذاهم وتوكل على الله وتوكل على الله وكفى بالله وكيلا آمنا بالله صدق الله العلي العظيم السلام عليكم ورحمة الله. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم. فضل بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم. Dear esteemed, I Ustad Sheikh Shumali, brothers and sisters, السلام عليكم ورحمة الله again. Well, I think that this is uh, the definition of having a full-packed mosque. Alhamdulillah. Everyone, thank you very much for coming. This is a sort of a semi-new initiative, at least we haven't seen it in this form. We've definitely not seen it in these numbers. So very happy that you've all attended and that you've enrolled, especially that I think that when the students are here to welcome the teachers, that is a very nice akhlaq, alhamdulillah, as well. Um, we just wanted to go, I'm not going to be very long, it's just some specific things. Given that this is the first time, Alhamdulillah, we have opened up with the Holy Quran and let that barakah be in our hearts and in every action which we do. Thank you very much, Brother Muhammad, for reciting so beautifully. I uh, wanted to say that uh, Hujat Academy is something which we will all make successful, inshallah, if we have the right intention. And given such a big number, probably you will think that how come everyone can fit in such a big hole? Well, we can but is this effective? Is it the way we should or shouldn't? Let me touch upon that. Given that there is such a huge interest and that this is particularly a word which I'm going to use, a journey. We wanted everyone to be on the same line, everyone on the same page, that this very first course on Aqaid 
will build the foundations for many other modules which will come, inshallah. So please do think that, you know, it's not normal to have 150 in one class, at least not in London. In Qum, it's quite often the case. And inshallah, other examples we learn from as well, inshallah. Um, when we go to the next stage, we will inshallah divide the class into smaller parts. But this time around, we felt it essential given it's five weeks where we all be on one page, inshallah. So bear with us on behalf of the Hujat Academy team. Other things, we, will, we are going to try to keep the timing very strict. Inshallah, today we are a bit late. Inshallah, we're going to become better as we go along. When it says quarter to eight, we will start quarter to eight, inshallah, and we will end quarter to ten. Today, we have, Sheikhana is going to speak for about an hour. Quarter to nine, we are going to have a break for ten minutes. And then five to nine, we will recommence. And that will be up to quarter past nine. Quarter past nine, we'll open the floor for Q&A, inshallah. And I'm sure there'll be lots of questions, inshallah. Um, <clears throat> one housekeeping rule, if anyone hasn't donated, uh, I mean registered, then you must register, please. We don't want anyone who have come here not registered. It's very important. You registered online, but we need your names here as well that you've attended and that you've collected the books as well as the writing pad and the pen, inshallah. We're going to have um, probably lots of questions as we go along. And the questions are not always, we are not always able to answer on the spot if there are so many. And sometimes questions are such that they come later on. So we're going to say it again and again, but you can send your questions to literary at jafris.org literary at jafris.org. Alhamdulillah, all of you have been very, very online savvy. So you're going to see the email address popping in in your email address again, inshallah. And you can also ask through our online portal, portal at jafris.org slash ask. That also will be in your email. Something which I would like to say that there is a bit of a stigma. These classes, some people will say, okay, we will have all these desks and chairs and things. We wanted to make it as professional as possible. There will be accreditation with these courses. And the stigma is sometimes, oh, will there be accreditation? Will there be exams as well? Yes, we will have examination as well. But don't be scared. We'll go on this journey together. If there are lots of questions, we may even set up a crash day as well to prepare for the exam. But it won't be that difficult. Bear with us. Okay. I would like to also say that at the table there was a box uh, for donations. So if you want to donate, please do. And I want to say on behalf of everyone here, especially the team, thank you very much for those who donated extra beyond even the enrollment. That was much, much appreciated. Thank you very much. And if you now want to donate a bit more, there is one on the ladies' desk as well as there with Brother Ashik. And next to Brother Ashik, there is also some very nice fruits from heaven. So please don't hesitate. Take the fruits. Be healthy. And I say that to myself first. Okay. So don't hesitate. Some people said, can I have the fruit? Yes, it's for us. Bismillah. Take it, inshallah. Okay. I won't say very much more, but I would like to say that we are very, very honored. We have a great scholar in our presence. And I'm sure that many of you who have enrolled is because loving, wanting to be in the presence of such a scholar as Dr. Awai Sheikh Shumani. <coughs> Alhamdulillah, he's a great scholar. I'm not going to go through the whole biography because that will take maybe half an hour, if not more. But suffice to say that he is the head of the Islamic Center. He's also the head of the Hosea Ilmiya. And he's the direct representative of Rehbari Mu'azzam Sayyid Ali Khamenei as well. And most of all, he's our dear teacher, and I think we are very lucky to have him. And we will welcome him with the best of ways with Salawat ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad.
No, it's okay. It's okay. السلام عليكم ورحمة الله بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم لا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله العلي العظيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله على سيدنا ونبينا أبي القاسم المصطفى محمد وآله الطيبين الطاهرين لا سيما بقية الله في الأرضين أجل الله تعالى فرجه الشريف وجعلنا من أعوانه وأنصاره وشيعته اللهم أخرجني من ظلمات الوهم وأكرمني بنور الفهم اللهم افتح علينا أبواب رحمتك وانشر علينا خزائن علومك I am very grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for this blessing of being here, part of a very blessed gathering when our places of worship serve also as place of learning, we are getting close to the pure Islam, where Masjid is supposed to be also a place of learning. And when Mu'mineen not only say prayer shoulder to shoulder by shoulder, but also sit together and learn together, this will bring more unity to the community. Because then the person that you know from the Masjid is your classmate as well. So I hope, inshallah, this type of initiatives would become more and inshallah more endurable. I would like to start with a hadith that you are all familiar with as a reminder, which is from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. This is cited in Biharul Anwar volume one, page 206. وَخَرَجَ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَآلِهِ فَإِذَا فِي الْمَسْجِدِ مَجْلِسَانِ One day Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam came out and then he saw in masjid two gatherings. Do you know why it says he came out and saw in the majlis two gatherings? Because his house was opening to the masjid. So when Rasulullah was coming out of the house, so he was in the masjid. And you know, in the beginning, many people had their houses open to the masjid. He left it only for himself and Imam Ali. All others had to go out of home and then go around and come from the entrance of the masjid. But only he and Amir al muminin were able to come directly to the masjid. So when he came out from home, he saw that there are two gatherings in Masjid. There was a gathering of people who were involved in learning. But learning in a very deep way. Not just getting some superficial information or you know just bits and pieces very deep understanding and this is what inshallah we aim to achieve in Hujjat Academy inshallah that we want to have tafaqqoh tafaqqoh doesn't mean to become a jurist or expert in fiqh tafaqqoh means to have deep understanding as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in Surah Tawbah فَلَوْلَا نَفَرَ مِنْ كُلِّ فِرْقَةٍ مِنْهُمْ طَائِفَةٍ so he said one group of people and one group are learning very seriously. Then there was another group of people who were calling upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, asking him for their hajat. So for example, like having a dua session, 
okay? Yad'oon Allah wa yas'alunah. So, for sure, it's very good to have a gathering for dua in masjid. Maybe some people say, we shouldn't have, you know, gathering for learning in masjid. Or if we have, they, be, they would be of equal importance. I don't think anyone would, thought, would have thought that they would be, for example, uh, required to give more preference to learning. But Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, فَقَالَ كِلَ الْمَجْلِسَيْنِ إِلَىٰ خَيْرٍ Both gatherings would lead to good. They're good. أَمَّا هَاؤُلَىٰ فَيَدْعُونَ اللَّهِ Those people who were involved in dua said, it's very good. They are calling upon Allah. They are praying. وَأَمَّا هَاؤُلَىٰ فَيَتَعَلَّمُونَ the other group are learning and they are teaching those who are ignorant. So both of them are good. Both groups are good. But then Rasulullah said But those who are learning and teaching the people who are ignorant, they are better. Then he said Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sent me to teach. Maybe you don't think that the first thing is teaching. You think that the first thing for Rasulullah is to lead the prayer or to join people in the prayer. But he says, Allah has sent me to be in, involved in teaching. Then Rasulullah sat with the people who are involved in learning and teaching. So, if Rasulullah was going to enter the center today, for sure he would be very happy to see that in a place which belongs to Ahlul Bayt community, he would see so many people are doing what he has been sent for. May Allah Keep for us this blessing and inshallah increase this blessing. Okay. Now we go to our discussion about Islamic beliefs. Actually, it's very relevant to have this course here because as you might have read in the introduction, this book is based on a series I had here, but not in this whole in the ELC. In 2006-2007, when I was in London for my sabbatical, so I was asked by uh, brothers and sisters here to have a series on Aqa'id, and for each principle, they asked me to have two sessions. So we had 10 sessions on Aqa'id. Those 10 sessions are now online. So after the lectures were delivered, then the transcript was made ready. Then it remained for some years because I didn't have time to review it. So Alhamdulillah, last year, with the help of my wife, we managed to review and check the references, and it's published. So the book has come from Hujjat Center, and now we are again back to Hujjat Center. May, inshallah, Imam of Hujjah, inshallah, be pleased with us and prosper, inshallah, this community. As you know, we have many, many doctrines in Islam, but those doctrines which are very fundamental and every Muslim is supposed to believe are three. One is unity of God, one is prophethood, and the other is resurrection. Any Muslim from any sect believes in these three. They all believe in Tawheed, in unity of God. As you know, Islam is classified as a monotheistic religion, the same as Christianity and Judaism. Some people think that Christianity is not a monotheistic religion, but this is not true. Christianity is also a monotheistic religion. They themselves, and also uh, all people who do religious studies, 
they consider them as monotheistic religion. But their understanding of unity of God comes in a Trinitarian form, but still they believe in one God. And that's very important. In Islam also, we are very clear that God is one. And inshallah later we will talk about different aspects of unity of God. Prophethood, we believe in prophethood, and that is we believe in the need of humanity to receive guidance from God in the form of revelation. Not only God has given us our intellect, our conscience, but God provides us also with revelation. God sends prophets, God sends books, and this is also shared by all Muslims and indeed by all followers of Abrahamic religions. What we as Muslims have is that in addition to the general prophethood, what we call in Kalam the general prophethood, the fact that we all need guidance from God in the form of revelation, we Muslims believe that God has actually sent as his last prophet, Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And the third is the belief in resurrection, which is very important. Actually, in the Quran, you find many times to believe in God and the hereafter come together. To believe in God and the hereafter. These are very important. And there are many books by our scholars, by Muslim scholars, theologians, philosophers. For example, Ibn Sina, Mullah Sadra, they have books called Al Mabda'u Al Ma'ad. The origin, which means Al Mabda. The return. So we come from God and we go back to God. If you just think that we come from God but we are not going back to Him, this is not acceptable. So we have come from God and we have to go back to God. It's not possible for us to remain forever separate from God. We have to go back to God. Indeed, the Quran tells us not only human beings go back to God. Everything goes back to God. Everything goes back finally to God. What does it mean that everything goes back to God? Inshallah we'll explain when we reach resurrection. So, these are three principles, major principles that we share with all Muslims. But, the Shia, in order to have a distinct identity in their theology, they have added two more principles. Because there were many differences between Muslims in theological issues, right from this first century, not only from the end of the first century, from the first half of the first century, there were lots of differences of opinions merging after the demise of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So soon, the Muslim Ummah faced emergence of many different theological ideas and identities, and finally different schools of thought. So the Shia community, in order to have a distinct sense of identity, they highlighted two more principles. So among lots of doctrines that we have, they chose two doctrines out of many and singled them out so that we can say, if you believe in these five, then you are a Shia. So this doesn't mean that we don't have any other doctrine. This means that if you believe in these five, then we can be sure that you are a Shia. So you don't need to mention six if by having these five, the purpose is served, so you don't need to say six or seven. So we want to say the minimum doctrines that if you believe you are Muslim, is three. The minimum doctrines that if you believe in you are Shia, are five. Those two additional are Adl, the fact that God is just, but not only by definition. Because all Muslims believe that God is just. There is, if it was just saying that God is just, then this would not serve as a distinctive feature. 
all Muslims say God is just. What can help us in making a distinction is how to define divine justice. Ash'arites had the idea that God is just, thank you, not because of any independent, objective understanding of what is justice or injustice. No, there is no such a thing as independent, objective understanding of justice or injustice. Indeed, there is no independent, objective understanding of what is good or bad. Everything is just based on the way God himself introduces to us good and bad. So according to the Asharites, we have a kind of divine command theory. So if you are familiar with the Western way of thinking, so from the time of Plato, there has been this discussion that is good good because of something which makes it different from bad? Something that even if you are a religious person, if you are not a believer, you would distinguish by your mind, by your intellect. Or just good is good because you have called it good. And authority has called it good. For religious people, God. Maybe in some, for example, places, their, I don't know, king decides what is good. What maybe sometimes it's based on law. There's no difference. Ash'arites had this idea that God just arbitrarily says certain things are good, certain things are bad. Certain practices are just, certain practices are unjust. He could have changed. He could have said quite opposite. So instead of saying that, for example, keeping your promises is good, he could have said it's good to break your promises. Very simple. So this is the idea of the Asharites. But why they went to this extreme? Because of lack of understanding. They thought if we say there is an objective difference between good and bad, just and unjust, it means that God has to follow certain norms, certain criteria. And they thought God is higher than any criteria. Okay, this is a good concern to have, you know, concern for the authority of God, for superiority of God, but the way they try to serve it has actually made the wisdom of God and justice of God in question. Because if you say there is no difference between list of the virtues that we have and list of the vices that we have in Islam, it means that there is no wisdom and it means that God is not just to take some people, for example, to heaven and some other people to hell because he could have just changed them. There's no big difference here. Why there must be so much of, you know, uh, stress in the Quran? Don't do these things. Otherwise, you know, you will be held responsible. And, you know, other, if you are not, you know, accountable, you know, you may get into a stage that you need to be punished and so on and so forth. All these things become, you know, uh, absurd. So, the idea of Asharites looks nice, but it leads to some implications which you cannot accept. Mu'tazilites and the Shiites try to come up with another understanding of justice and another understanding of goodness and badness. And that is, there are independent, objective criteria for goodness and badness. What we call intrinsic goodness and badness. No matter whether you understand it or not, whether you are religious or not, there is a difference between helping the people who are in need or harming the people who are innocent. <laughs> okay, these two are different. You don't need to be religious to understand this. Imam Hussain said on the day of Ashura, when he saw some enemies are going towards the tents of Ahlul Bayt, attacking the ladies and children, he said, 
وَكُنْتُمْ لَا تَخَافُونَ الْمَعَادِ فَكُونُوا أَحْرَارًا فِي دُنْيَاكُمْ If you have no faith, if you have no fear for the hereafter, at least try to be noble. Free here means noble. Try to be noble in your worthy life. You don't need to be a religious person to understand that innocent people like children and ladies should not be attacked. Do you need to be a religious person to understand? No. So, according to Shiites and Mu'tazilites, we believe that there is a real difference between justice and injustice. Inshallah, when we reach the second principle, we will talk about it. So, adding justice as a principle makes us distinct from Ash'arites and people who are like them, but still it would not be enough because we share this with the Mu'tazilites. And actually, if you are familiar with the Mu'tazilite theology, they have also five principles, but uh, their five principles, some of them are the same as us, some are different. One of their principles that is similar to us is Tawhid, and one is Adl. So we need something more. Something more to make us distinct and also something which is very much central in being Shia and that is Imam, Imamate. So the other major doctrine that we stress on is Imamate and that is divinely appointed leadership. So we believe that in every age actually Imamate is not only about Imamate of Imam Ali or even Imamate of the 12 Imams. Imamate is a principle that has existed before even Islam. Inshallah, we'll talk about it. For example, you know, Ibrahim Imama. Imamate means that we believe that in every generation there must be a leader that is qualified to be leading people, not only in their political affairs, but also in their religious affairs. And that person is appointed by God. So it's divinely appointed leadership. After Prophet Muhammad وسلم, this role is given by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, declared by the Prophet to Imam Ali So Allah appoints, the Prophet declares, and people should welcome. So this is the principle of Imam or Imamate. So if you believe in these five, then you can be recognized as a Shia. So now we have to study each of them and see what secondary doctrines come under each. You say Tawhid, but there are lots of doctrines that come under Tawhid. You say Prophethood, but lots of doctrines come under Prophet. So these are five principles, lots of derivative or secondary doctrines come under them. Or you can say these are roots and lots of branches come out of them. So you can use the analogy of a tree which has roots and branches, or you can say these are the principles and then under them you have lots of derivative or secondary doctrines. So we go on to the first principle and that is Tawhid. First of all, why we don't start with existence of God? Because logically Existence of God is before oneness of God. Some people may say, you know, first you have to accept that God exists, then you talk about <coughs> unity of God. In many books on Aqaid, they do the same. First they prove existence of God, and they talk about the unity of God. 
In modern books on philosophy of religion, they do the opposite. They first talk about the attributes of God, then they talk about the existence of God. So if you choose any modern book on philosophy of religion, you would see that there is a discussion about attributes of God, then about arguments for God and arguments against God. So, because philosophy of religion doesn't belong to any particular religion. So they have to first discuss what we mean by God, then whether that exists or not. But in books on Aqaid in Islam, because we know what we mean by God, so that's enough to begin our discussion for the existence of God, and then we move on to the attributes to go further uh, in this discussion. But our scholars have always said Tawheed, not existence of God. Why? Because the emphasis in the Quran is on unity of God, not existence of God. Because existence of God is not something difficult to understand. Is there any doubt in God? In, this is, you have it in book. It is verse 10 of chapter 14. Is there any doubt in God? The creator of the skies and the earth is not something difficult to understand. So the Quran says that to believe that God exists is not difficult. Although the Quran comes up with some arguments, and I will mention some of those arguments, but the main focus is on correcting people's understanding of God. Because even those pagans in Mecca and around, they didn't doubt existence of God. They suffered polytheism. They suffered shirk. The Quran says, "La'in sa'altahum man khalaqas samawati wal earth." Chapter thirty-nine, verse thirty-eight. If you ask them who created the skies and the earth, they would not say, "No, no one created them. They are created by chance." Or, for example, you know, they have created themselves. No. وَلَئِنْ سَأَلْتَهُمْ مَنْ خَلَقَ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ لَيَقُولُنَّ اللَّهِ They would say, certainly, God has created them. So, then why you worship idols? In the verse 3 of the same chapter, God says, their argument was, we only worship idols because we want to get closer to that one God. We don't believe that these idols have created the world. We just believe that these idols have some position with God. If we worship them, we get closer to God. This is their mentality. We don't worship them except for them taking us closer to God. It's the wrong idea, of course, but this is the way they took the issue of idol worshiping. So, even they, they knew that God exists and God is the creator. So, this is why the focus is on correcting people's understanding of God, and that is mostly through Torah. But as I said, Quran has also some arguments. For example, in chapter 52, verse 35, you find a kind of rational argument. Are they created from nothing? Can we be created from nothing? Nothing is nothing. So how can something be coming from nothing? <laughs> you know, if nothing is nothing, so how can something come from nothing? We have another idea, and you have to be careful, distinguish between two. We are not created from nothing. Even Allah didn't create us from nothing. We are created not from anything. So that there are two different things. Sometimes you say, we are created, or Allah has created us from nothing. No, this is wrong. Right. 
We say Allah created us not from anything. Min There is nothing that was there that God created us from there. If you are not careful and you say God created us from nothing, this is wrong. You have to say God created us not from anything. It means there was no material that God used in order to create us. As Lady Fatima Salamullah mentioned in her sermon. So, Am min shay'in Are they created from nothing? Am humul khaliqun Oh, they have created themselves. None of them is acceptable. To say you have created yourself, it means that you had to exist before you existed. Yeah? If I want to create myself, it means that I have to be there so that I can be a creator. But you say you are creating yourself, so it means that you are not still there. So how can I create myself? It leads to contradiction. Okay? And if you say they are created from nothing, nothing cannot do anything. Okay? So none of these two options work. So there must be a creator, which is not us. Because we cannot create it ourselves. This world cannot be created by itself. And it cannot be from nothing. So it, there must be something that created us other than ourselves. And that creator is God. So this is a Quranic argument. But in the books on Aqaid and philosophy, we have lots of arguments for the existence of God. Inshallah, when you start the next book, Islamic Belief System, you have three arguments there for the existence of God. One is based on fitra, the other is based on cosmological argument for the existence of God, you know, burhanul wujube wal imkan, and one is argument from design, burhan and nazm, in the next level, inshallah. So for the time being, we don't discuss that much about arguments for the existence of God, this much is enough. Why so much emphasis on Tawheed? One, as I said, is because the people of that time suffered from shirk, polytheism. But this is not only a historical factor. Tawheed always is important. Tawheed is not only a principle in our aqaid, Tawheed is also a principle in our akhlaq. Tawheed is a principle in our approach to any corner of life. There are two beautiful hadiths that you can find in the book. One hadith is hadith from Amirul, uh, sorry, from Imam Raza alayhi salam. One is from Rasulullah. Uh, I think both must be in the book, but uh, maybe the one from the Prophet is not in the book, but you can check. The one from the Prophet is Say there is no God but Allah, one God, and then you would be prosperous, you would be happy. You know, Rasulullah used to say in Mecca to people, believe in Tawheed, believe in one God, everything will be sorted out. He was not saying, I give you a list of the doctrines, and if you believe in all of them, you will be saved. He said, believe in Tawheed. And those pagans, they knew that to believe in Tawheed would totally change their lifestyle. And this is why they were hesitant. And actually they were resistant. If it was just saying, La ilaha illallah, or more than saying, to believe there is only one God, then you do everything you like, they would have said it and saved you know, their position, their leadership, everything. But they knew, they were clever. They knew that if they say La ilaha illallah, it has lots of implications. If they say La ilaha illallah, can they have slaves? No, because you are all created by the same God. Why do you think you are superior to other creatures of God? If they say La ilaha illallah, can they demand in an unjust way from people their obedience? No. Anyway, they were very clever. So they realized that if they believe in Tawheed, they have to change their, their lifestyle. So they were clever to understand this, but they were not brave to accept it. 
Okay? So they resisted. Imam Raza alayhi salam also, as you know, in the famous hadith of Silsila to Zahab. Silsila means chain. Zahab means gold. Silsila to Zahab means golden chain. Because all the narrators who occur in the chain of this hadith are infallible. He quotes from his father, Imam Qadr, from his grandfather, finally from Amirul Mu'minin, from the Prophet, from Jibra'il, from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. La ilaha illallah hasni. The word of unity of God is my fortress. La ilaha illallah is my fortress. Who, whoever enters my fortress, Amina min adabi. He would be saved from my punishment. Okay. Imam Raza said this. Then he moved on and then he stopped. And he is surrounded by thousands of people in the city of Neshabur on his way from Medina to Marv. Because you know the story that Imam was asked by Ma'mun to go from Medina and stay with him in Marv because he wanted to watch Imam and also at the same time he wanted to add to his popularity a very you know clever decision by having Imam next to him he can control Imam but also he can say I am a very good person and bring the love of people towards himself but of course when darkness brings light to itself then darkness will be in a worse situation <laughs> because people would see the contrast better if imam was further away it was better for him now people can see oh these two there's no way to connect them anyway so on the way to marv imam alayhi salam Surrounded by thousands of people in Neshabur, and actually you have to know these people were mostly not Shia. At that time, Neshabur was mostly inhabited by Sunni Muslims, but they had love for Ahlul Bayt. So they asked for hadith. Imam said, La ilaha illallah hasni, faman dakhal hasni amina min adabi. Then he stopped then, uh, his conversation. He moved on. Then he stopped again and said, Normally people say Bishartaha wa but as far as we looked, what we found is Bishurutaha wa anamin shurutaha. And there are conditions for that. There are conditions. There are no additions. Please take you know this point seriously. Is there anything that you need to add to Tawheed? No. But there are conditions. So nothing comes next to God and nothing comes next to Tawheed. So in the existence, nothing comes to God and in our belief, nothing comes next to Tawheed. But there are conditions. It means something under Tawheed. There are conditions for Tawheed. And I am one of the conditions. If you want to be a real Muwahid, you have to believe in the fact that God has planned for our leadership. And that comes through divinely appointed leadership, that's through Imam. Why Imam alayhi salam stopped and moved on and then again stopped and said this? Can you guess? Why he didn't say them together? Because this is not part of the Hadith of Qudsi. This is the interpretation. So he said, La ilaha illallah hisni faman dakhila hisni amina min adabi. This was the hadith of Qudsi that Allah said. Then he stopped and he gave a commentary, a further explanation that there are conditions for Tawheed and one of them is Imam. So Tawheed is very, very important. I have also referred to what Allah Tabatabai has said in Al Mizan about the significance of Tawheed in Islamic understanding of ethics. Allah says there are different ways to deal with morality. 
It can be based on consequences of your actions. It can be based on reward and punishment. But Quran has a third approach in addition to the first two. So the first approach is to say, you have to do good things because of these good outcomes, good out consequences. Or you have to avoid doing bad things because they have these bad outcomes or consequences. This is one approach. The other is to say, you have to do good things because then you would deserve reward. You have to avoid doing bad things because you would then deserve blame or if it's severe punishment. Okay? So there are two approaches that is, you find them very common. But Allah Metabatabai says, Quran has a third and unique approach, which is based on Tawheed. That is the basis, that is the foundation, that is the core of Islamic value system. If you believe in God, the one, then all virtues come. And all the vices would stop. This is not the time to discuss that point because we are not now discussing ethics. But this is to give you an idea that how important it is to be a person who is strongly committed to Tawheed in his aqidah, in his morality, in his life, whether it be social, whether it be personal, whether it be political, whether it be economical, everything should have the fragrance of Tawheed. So Tawheed is very important. Now let us refer to different dimensions or different levels of Tawheed. I think I just mentioned <coughs> the names and then we would have a break and then inshallah we continue. And you are all familiar. It's a reminder for you. It's nothing perhaps new. A reminder, but maybe with a little, you know, kind of uh, reorientation. So one is unity of God with respect to essence. At Tawheed al-Dhati. I will explain it, inshallah, after break. Unity of God with respect to divine essence. Second, unity of God with respect to divine attributes. At Tawheed al-Sifati. Third is unity of God with respect to actions at Tawheed al-Af'ali. And the fourth is unity of God with respect to practice. You have to worship only one God. So we have four types. In some books they mention more, for example, unity of God with respect to obedience. But I think these four would be enough for us. Unity of God with respect to divine essence. Unity of God with respect to divine attributes. Unity of God with respect to actions and unity of God with respect to worship. What these four involve would be inshallah discussed after the break. There's a couple of important announcements. Regarding the sign-in list, if anyone has put written down their names, but they couldn't see their names on the list. If you've just written your name, please also write down your email address as well. Otherwise, it's very difficult for us to allocate you or find you, so please do that, both on ladies' and gents' side, okay? Ahsan. Secondly, uh, we've had a bit of complaints, so we have to listen. The complaint is such that we have to respect each other. Switch off your mobile phones, inshallah. All right? So no mobile phones. Here it is mamnu to have any mobile phones. Okay? Ahsan. Sallu ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. La hawla wa la quwwata illa billah al-aliyyil azim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wa sallallahu ala sayyidina wa nabiyyina abil qasim al-mustafa Muhammad. Wa alihi al-tayyibin al-tahirin la siyama baqiyatillahi fil-aradhin. So this is the second part of our discussion about Tawheed and as we said in the previous one 
we talk about four levels or four aspects of Tawheed. So, Tawheed al-Zati, unity of God with respect to divine essence, means that God is one reality. We don't have several realities. One reality. No partner and no parts. So there is no multiplicity in God externally or internally. Okay? Externally, it means that we don't have partners for God. Internally, it means that God is not a compound which has different parts. This is very important aspect of Tawhid and actually this is the basis. Then, at Tawhid al-Sifati, or unity of God with respect to divine attributes, for sure, we believe in different qualities, different attributes for God. God is knowledgeable, God is powerful, God is living, God is willing. God is benevolent. So there are many qualities for God. We should understand these qualities in the way that would not suggest any multiplicity in God as a reality. As a reality, God is one, internally and externally. So what about the multiplicity of the attributes? Say these, these qualities are different only in our understanding, only in the conceptual framework that we give to God. God doesn't have multiplicity, but you use a multiple framework. For example, the same reality that we refer to as God has knowledge. The same reality has power. The same reality has life. The same reality has will. But not that his knowledge is accidental to his essence or additional to his essence. Not that his power is accidental or additional to his essence. Not that his life is accidental or additional to his essence. And nor that these them are different from each other. All these attributes are identical with the essence and with each other as existence. The only difference is in our understanding. Outside, in reality, there is only one entity. That's God. But you can refer to God as Alim. You can refer to him as Qadir. You can refer to him as Hai. You can refer to him as Murid, the one who has will. You can use different terms, different concepts. You can look at God from different perspectives. But God is the same. And God is the one. The differences of your approach, the differences of the concepts that you use would not imply that there is any little multiplicity in God. There is a poem in Arabic that you find in many books which says, Ibaratuna shatta wa husnuka wahidu kullun ila dhaka al yushiru we use different expressions to talk about your beauty. But your beauty is the same. Yeah? You can <laughs> This confirms what I said. <laughs> so, your beauty is the same. But we can refer to that by using different terms. So, this is at Tawhidus Sefati, which is actually... Uh, very very difficult you know concept and some people some Muslims didn't take it uh, you know to the right you know platform and for example Mu'tazilites came up with the idea that we have eight eternal beings Al-Qudama they took every quality of God to be separate from God so in the Mu'tazilite approach, God is something as essence, knowledge of God is something separate, and power is something 
separate. So they came up with seven eternal entities as qualities plus essence and say eight eternal things. And we don't accept this. We say God is only one and all his attributes are identical with each other in reality. The only difference is in concept. For example, you can say to a human being, this is a human being. You can say this is a man. You can say this is a cre creature. You can say this is a contingent being. You can use different terms, but it's for the same thing. Of course, in God, simplicity or besata, not to be compound, is at its maximum. 